and welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. I'm Ruth Townend, Research Fellow in the Environment and Society Centre, and in this episode we'll be staging a two-horse race, unicorns versus workhorses, in the fight to limit climate change and its impacts. In our last episode, we discussed the outcomes of COP28, including the groundbreaking but still insufficient agreement by governments across the world to transition away from fossil fuels in order to meet the Paris Agreement goal of limiting climate change. The speed and scale at which this transition needs to progress to stay in line with Paris targets presents an enormous challenge. Around a 45% fall in emissions is needed by 2030, when we are still on an upward trajectory. COP28 was heralded as the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era, but the journey towards a symbiotic rather than a destructive relationship with the planet will have many twists and turns. With many global economies dependent on fossil fuels, tourism, carbon-heavy exports, and with a food system in crisis, it's no wonder that curiosity is peaked, hopes raised, and government communications built around the promise that human ingenuity might offer an easier escape route. Some novel technological solutions may offer real promise and help the world to navigate complex challenges, both from climate change and attempts to limit it. Others may prove uneconomic, unscalable or fail completely, and in the process may divert money and distract minds from the unavoidable task of cutting emissions. Under the Paris Agreement process, countries need to resubmit their national climate plans or NDCs ahead of COP30 in Brazil in 2025. Given they have less than two years to develop these, the relative weight and role of emissions reductions, emissions removals and other novel mitigation technologies will be central in determining the course of climate action and indeed climate change over a crucial decade. It's vital that there is an open, constructive conversation about these technologies at a global level and given the time frame, this needs to happen sooner rather than later. So, to discuss the potential of unicorn technologies and their more plodding workhorse counterparts, I'm delighted to be joined today by our two fantastic guests. So, coming up on the right-hand side, we have Gwyn Dyer, who has worked as a journalist, broadcaster and lecturer on international affairs for several decades. He writes a twice-weekly syndicated column on international affairs, published by 175 papers in 45 countries, and translated into more than a dozen languages. His books include The Shortest History of War and Climate Wars, and Gwyn's forthcoming book, Intervention Earth, explores innovative climate solutions from cloud seeding to carbon sequestration. Welcome to the podcast, Gwyn. Thank you very much. Straining at his bit down the line from Gloucestershire, we have my colleague Daniel Quiggin, who's at home pending the imminent upping of his personal stake in climate action with the arrival of his first child. Dan is a Senior Research Fellow with the Environment and Society Centre at Chatham House. He specialises in the analysis of how national and global energy systems will evolve out to 2050. His current research and policy engagement focuses on negative emissions under net zero policies, climate risks and impacts, the role of demand reduction within the energy transition, and the trade of lithium-ion battery raw materials. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. And we're off. So (laughs) we're off indeed. Gwyn, for your upcoming book, Intervention Earth, you've spoken to more than 50 thinkers, innovators, and engineers about how we might cool the planet and avoid catastrophe. Tell us about some of the solutions that you heard. 
among all these potential climate solutions, which were the most magical, the most exciting, and most importantly, the most promising? I think the first thing is to say that the solar and the wind, the stuff that, you know, the, the workhorses that are supposed to get us out of fossil fuels are the most important. But one of the problems with them is that you can't store electrical energy as electrical energy. I mean, yes, we're doubling the solar power every three or four years, you know, that, which is wonderful, but it even that only gets us about 30% of our energy from solar 10 years from now. So it's a long haul, but storage is the real point where things go wrong because if you cannot store energy, you have to have a much larger capacity in order to meet a lower demand because sometimes the sun won't shine, the wind won't blow, etc. So storage is becoming the major blockage. Now, the ways they're dealing with it at the moment are basically using hot rocks or hot water or some kind of lithium battery or something to store the, the energy, and then you take it out later at a great loss. The unicorn, if you like, would be essentially space-based solar energy. Because it gets round the problem of intermittency. You've got sunshine all the time. They have actually just done their first test for beaming direct uh, DC power back to Earth. And it works in principle. The problem was, of course, getting stuff into orbit has an immense cost. They figured they might get break even on solar mirrors in space or solar collectors, I should say if they could do it for $1,000 a kilogram. Well, even the best we've got at the moment, which is the heavy lift thing, Musk's thing, is $1,500 a kilogram. But the new one, the one that they're now testing, it keeps blowing up, the Starship one, he's predicting $200 a kilogram. So that is definitely a unicorn. Don't shoot it. What the dark horse coming up which is very interesting, is geothermal. Geothermal has been until now something associated with hot rocks and volcanic terrain. So you've got it in Italy and you've got it in Iceland and you've got it in New Zealand and that's about it. And you use the heat to, you know, to run turbines in the usual way, but you're depending on hot rocks that actually reach, you know, push stuff up to the surface. The new stuff that's coming out now, and actually the first megawatt station is opening right now, this year in Nevada, is geothermal, which depends essentially on fracking technology. In other words, you make your own hole. You don't depend on a volcano or something. You drill down three, you can go to 4,000 meters, so four kilometers, into hot rock. And then you use the fracking technology, which includes horizontal drilling out in every direction from your original hole, and you create the fractures in the rock that you then put water into and collect the heat from the, and you know, at four kilometers down, there's a lot of hot rock everywhere. So you're no longer tied to particular areas with volcanic activity. And you don't depend on the geology all that much. So it's a full circuit 
of energy generation from hot rock virtually anywhere you want to do it. As I say, the first megawatt station is going in right now in the United States. And that is a possible sort of breakthrough. I mean, you, this, is, this could be bigger than, than solar eventually. It's more than a, a, a unicorn, yeah. but it's, it's really a hopeful sign. Those are really interesting dark horses. I also really like that you've extended the metaphor still further, perhaps, (laughs) onto even shakier ground than it was on to begin with. Um, I'm also really interested that in your book, you not only looked at energy transition technologies, but you also looked at carbon dioxide removal technologies and also geoengineering. I'd like to hear about some of those solutions as well, if possible. Certainly. Okay, well, carbon dioxide removal. CDR, is now the flavor of the month. It has been really since about 2015 when they finally realized that just decreasing your emissions is happening far too slowly. You are going to exceed all of your boundaries and barriers. So we've got to start taking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere as well as stopping putting more in. So carbon dioxide removal technologies, and frankly, There's none that are very impressive at the moment. There are now the first megawatt carbon dioxide removal stations opening up in the United States. So, sorry, megaton, taking a million tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere per year. There's about half a dozen of them now planned, subsidized by the U.S. government. Mr. Biden's been quite keen on this stuff. But the problem is that the scale that you've got to do this at, and it's an energy-intensive technology, is absolutely enormous. To take out one quarter of our emissions, which is sort of the, the goal, 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year, would require 10,000 of these stations. So that's the scale at which you've got to think Doing that at scale will be necessary eventually, but it is not going to save you from smashing through all of your present boundaries in the early 2030s or earlier. So the one really hopeful sign there is that very much later, just in pilot plan now, is direct ocean capture, which is trying to take the carbon dioxide not out of the atmosphere, but out of a much denser medium, the ocean, And that has a number of advantages. It's electrochemical, and it does consume power, but it's not a batch process like direct air capture. You can do it continuously. First plants opening up in California right now, Caltech's probably in the lead on that. But let's talk a bit about the geoengineering. So we're almost certain to go through the boundaries we have set ourselves on the warming. And whereas 10 years ago, um, and I did a book about this 10 years ago, so I can, you know, I went and interviewed all these folks then. Uh, 10 years ago, most people didn't want to talk about geoengineering. You know, it's too dangerous. It's an unknown. It's an added risk and uncertainty. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the devil in holy water ran shrieking from it. Yeah, you said in your book that it was a not-in-front-of-the-children subject, that sort which of I was thing, interested. Yes, you know, want to see my, my, my geoengineering pictures? <laughs> and unfortunately, the last time round, now, and I've noticed it moving even in the last two or three years, 
I would say half the scientists I've talked to now reckon it is probably going to be inevitable mm. that we have to do some kind of geoengineering to hold the heat down. That's not a permanent solution, but it keeps the society functioning, mm. avoids breakdown while you are working on all of the carbon dioxide removal and emissions reductions that you should be doing, of course, and should do, should have been doing far more earlier. What kinds of technologies are these, these geoengineering okay. options? Almost all the geoengineering technologies involve reducing the amount of sunlight reaching the planet's surface, obviously. You know, I mean, that's where the energy comes from. We, you know, and we're reducing it by two or three percent. We're not talking about, you know, darkness at noon. And the question is, at what altitude do you do it? Stratospheric aerosol injection, they call it, SAI, stratospheric aerosol injection, or solar radiation management, but that's the more collective term for all of the ways of diminishing incoming sunlight. And frankly, it will work, but there are anxieties because the favored chemical that will reflect incoming sunlight is sulfur dioxide. It's been tested in a way because volcanoes put this stuff up into the stratosphere, but it is an unknown, and you're playing with the only atmosphere you've got, and so there's a great deal of concern about that, particularly because it may, may revive the destruction of ozone that we've caused by other chemicals that we put into the atmosphere. Yeah. So not necessarily the best plan, the second one is doing it on the surface by spraying seawater in very fine bubbles into the air. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of energy. You just spray it on the ocean surface. Convection currents take it up into clouds that are two or 300 meters above the ocean, thicken the cloud, reflect more sunlight, again, cool the planet. Those are the two leading ones. Both of them require a technology we have not built. Mm -hmm. So if you have a sudden burst of temperature rise, uh, what they call a nonlinear burst, their scientists are aware that besides the steady warming we are experiencing, which we can predict, there are substantial possibilities that you can get sudden lurches upward when you tr cross certain thresholds. So we don't have the technologies, if we do have a lurch at the moment, to stop it. So the one thing that here is a real dark horse. I went to the last um, climate uh, geoengineering meeting that scientists hold every two years, and I ran across a fella who actually had been working all his career in planetary science, JPL, the Jet Propulsion lab in California, which is part of NASA, really. And he'd retired, and his whole job had been looking at the way that various planets reflect sunlight so you can figure out what they're made of. And he made his retirement project figuring out what other chemicals you could use in the atmosphere to reflect sunlight, preferably without a lot of high technology. It's a step above golf as a retirement project. It is a very good <laughs> retirement project. And his answer, which I love and I think is plausible, is that 
you can get just as good reflection from table salt as you can from sulfur dioxide in terms of reflecting sunlight back into space. You dare not put table salt into the stratosphere because table salt is sodium chloride and it dissociates. So you mustn't do that in the stratosphere, but you could do it in the troposphere. Down here, he's figured out that if you had a real emergency, you could get enough table salt into the lower atmosphere 300 Boeing 747 freighters every three months, full loads, enough table salt to bring the temperature down one degree, reflect enough incoming sunlight in the troposphere. And the basic question that he hasn't yet answered is, can the salt makers make particles small enough that they will stay aloft a longer time in the troposphere? As an emergency response, it has real attraction because you could do it now. Dan, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on on the kind of technologies that Gwen has been learning about from his research and also to hear a bit more about these workhorses of the energy transition, the things that we have already that are going to need to do the heavy, heavy lifting that, that Gwen mentioned. Yeah, thanks very much. And Gwyn, massive congratulations on your book. You've covered a huge amount of ground. It was a, a real pleasure to, to read over it. Um, I suppose, as you covered in your book, the, the first thing to, in assessing any technology is to think about the relative rate of deployment and the context is how fast climate change is occurring, right? You talked about tipping points and kind of how long we have and from what I could see, I sort of broadly agree with you. Um, you know, we are crossing tipping points at the moment. More tipping points are likely to kick in as we pass 1.5 and towards two degrees. And it's this kind of cascading climate change that we really need to be concerned about. It's just really important, I suppose, for our listeners to be aware of that that point is likely to occur uh, within the year 2030. So we really, you know, have. Uh, only six or seven years, really, before we start crossing 1.5. So I suppose in kind of assessing what are, in Ruth's framing, unicorns and workhorses, we really need to think about what we can deploy within that timescale and what will have the biggest impact. That's not to get into some sort of dichotomized uh, thinking here. Um, we're in such a kind of perilous state that everything needs to be on the table, be that geoengineering, greenhouse gas removals, and all the supply-side technologies. But so too does demand. Going back to your original uh, framing around storage, I feel the one that's maybe slightly missed out on here is green hydrogen, um, which is based on electrolyzers. And the reason I point this out is because we know from looking at the energy transition thus far, the technologies that have really won, as it were, have been those that have been modular um, and therefore you can produce lots of them. And I know you touch upon this in your book as well. But there's a really important concept, which is the learning rate. So you produce more and more solar panels, more and more lithium-ion batteries, more and more wind turbine blades. The manufacturing process becomes more and more efficient because you produce more of them, you learn more. Whereas you know, large-scale nuclear or the application of carbon capture and storage on large infrastructure projects, you're actually only deploying a small number of them at any given moment in time. 
So we've seen huge learning rates in relation to solar, wind, and lithium-ion batteries um, because we deployed them relatively early and they're modular. I think that's interesting in relation to electrolyzers and therefore green hydrogen. They are not yet commercially uh, affordable. They're still quite expensive. But based on the fact that they're modular, they are likely to go down that learning curve very rapidly. And as we produce hydrogen, we can then use that hydrogen, that green hydrogen from those electrolyzers, both to do balancing. So that storage between seasonal supply demand and on much shorter timescales as well, because at the moment we're already producing more renewable electricity at some moments in time, not all moments in time, than we can actually consume. And so some electricity, renewable electricity from solar and wind is already curtailed. Um, so basically not put onto the grid because there's not sufficient demand to soak it all up. So you can use some of that curtailed or surplus electricity to produce that uh, green hydrogen through your electrolyzers and then use it for storage. But you can also use it for high temperature heat processes, which you talk about in your book as well in terms of steel and so on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need those high temperature heat processes to be decarbonized. I think the other main point here in terms of workhorses is we need to think about the demand side in terms of being a workhorse as well. Politically and societally, focusing on the demand side has not been particularly fruitful thus far. It's been difficult, challenging. Uh, It's not a particularly good political sell. Politicians don't like to get on board with it. But it goes without saying that the biggest consumers of energy, you know, broadly the G20, are the biggest emitters. And it's our lifestyle choices, whether that's about eating meat or flying, etc., that really makes decarbonisation, not just across the electricity system, but the whole energy system, as well as uh, the land sector, it's that consumption that is most challenging. And as we saw in COVID, demand can actually fall very quickly. And as your book talks about, that demand bounced back, and so therefore the emissions bounce back as well. But there's been polling from Ipsos Mori and uh, coming out the Climate Assembly here in the UK that shows actually um, voters broadly support demand management so long as it's fair. And this is a really crucial point here. The most wealthy of us consume the most. So that burden needs to land on those that consume the most. So just to give you an example, I recently published a paper on the decarbonisation of the aviation sector. And we looked at, you know, what would be the level of demand reduction required if we put in some more realistic assumptions as to the deployment of sustainable aviation fuels, fuel efficiency savings, the electrification of planes through lithium-ion batteries, use of hydrogen and so on, all on the supply side. And we say, okay, let's take a risk-based approach here and say, what if the deployment of these technologies doesn't kind of reach what we would uh, like them to do? And I found that by 2030, you'd need about around about a third reduction in overall demand versus pre-pandemic levels. It was actually 36%. The question then becomes, where does that burden land, right, in terms of demand? And because actually three quarters of the UK population either don't fly in your average year or only fly once, they wouldn't need to do anything. So three quarters of us could carry on with our one family holiday a year or taking domestic holiday, not flying at all. 
And then as you move through kind of people flying twice, three times, four times a year, the conclusion essentially is that no one should fly more than four times a year and everyone should try and reduce by one flight apart from those who fly once or less. And you get to this 36% reduction. And so basically it's placing that burden on those who consume the most and that could be achieved by a frequent flyer levy or others and there's kind of debates around how that could be achieved. The point here is that the demand side and focusing on the demand side does not embody risk in the same way that some of the supply side decarbonisation options do, particularly greenhouse gas removals, negative emissions, and also solar radiation management. As the IPCC and others have pointed out numerous times that, yes, in principle, SRM, solar radiation management, and greenhouse gas removals, be that through bioenergy, carbon capture and storage or direct air capture, can in theory work. There's no disputing that. But they do embody risk. We know that in the locality in which SRM is done or applied, there would be a lowering of temperatures. But then there is uncertainty and risks around the knock-on consequences as to whether you would actually have more warming elsewhere and other externalities. So I think we need to take a risk and temporal approach to how we weight various different supply side decarbonisation options, negative emissions, SRM, and change that over time. So one thing you also touched upon in your book was on moral hazard. Sorry to interrupt, Dan. Yeah. I was just going to ask Gwyn if he, because I was going to ask you both about the, the moral hazard argument. One of the, just to summarise that, one of the major criticisms of innovative solutions to climate change is that they distract attention from proven approaches, offer false promises of shortcuts and encourage delaying tactics to interested parties. Now, I know those concerns arose in your book, Gwyn. I'd be really interested to hear in your own words how you think about that now. Well, how I think about it is that we are going to be driven from here forward by falling dominoes, by uh, sort of thresholds crossed, um, sudden lurches or the risk of sudden, sudden upward lurches in, in temperature, panic responses. This is not going to be a smooth and rational process, I don't, I expect. It hasn't been yet. And it's not going to get more so as time passes. Spoken as a true cop veteran. But go on. Well, I'm afraid so. <laughs> um, but um, the, 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 the core ha moral hazard argument has been, if you do a little bit more of this, then you will discourage people from doing the harder thing over there. So, so it's a balancing act, and, and I accept that. But the realistic possibilities for, let's say, the early 2030s that I see are that by then we will be well past 1.5. We will be having wild weather all the time. And the, the equation will change in terms of the willingness of people to take measurable risks against known perils of a very much larger dimension. So that yeah, it may discourage people from doing X, but we need to do Y right now because they're dying of heat in India. And maybe if I could just say a few words on, on the sort of moral hazard um, aspect. I agree with what you say in the book, which is that the, a moral hazard around the 
potential of SRM or negative emissions being able to be deployed in the future does not categorically mean that that deters all emission reduction action, all mitigation, right? If we were to say the fact that this thing could exist in the future, this this unicorn or you know possibility of, of deployment, the moral hazard argument would say that therefore deters you know all emissions reduction actions. And I agree with you, that's not correct. That's taking a dichotomized approach. But there are various papers out there that have shown that their potential existence does lead to a degree of deterrence and delay when it comes to mitigation and reducing emissions. And there's one particular paper that has shown that when it comes to greenhouse gas removal, so not specifically focusing on SRM here, that that delay in deterrence action could actually lead to a 1.4 degrees increase in temperatures because there's the risk of those technologies uh, failing or not materialising and therefore slowing down mitigation. But the politics of this is not going to be rational or, or smooth. It's going to be driven partly by panic, partly by greed, because opportunities arise for people to make money in solving these problems. And some of them will come to the fore, not because they are better, but because they are better funded or offer a quicker profit. I mean, but this is the real world here. So you've got to figure that into your your calculations. And I think the answer is big and rapid, whatever works. Yeah. But I think the part of the debate that is really missing is that there is a role for the demand side and that people are looking to, whether it's reduce meat consumption or, or whatever, play their role. And governments need to have a role within that too. So let's not talk about it simply as only relying on supply side technologies in order to meet our carbon budgets, carbon goals and close the emissions gap. I think also here, just back one step to the moral hazard, I think let's also keep in mind that one of the workhorses is actually regulations and legislation and the role of governance and governments in playing their role to kind of relate this back to the moral hazard, I would look at net zero. So net zero legislation within the UK uh, does not define a split between reductions, so emissions abatement through solar, wind, electric vehicles, whatever, reductions and removals. So removals, negative emissions through uh, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage or direct air capture. There's no split between them. Um, So that means that in theory, you could have ever rising fossil fuel emissions compensated by an ever growing reliance on negative emissions. Now, that's a thought experiment, not necessarily government policy, but it shows an inadequacy of government legislation, which is that there is no split defined between them, which therefore amplifies the risk of the moral hazard. So one way government policy could evolve is for net zero to define that split. And whilst negative emissions through engineered or nature-based solutions, as well as solar radiation management, are risky and not yet proven at scale, then your removals element of your net zero target and split would be relatively low. And as we move through time and they are more empirically proven, 
then your reliance on them could grow and the removals split within net zero could increase. So there is a workhorse here, a really important one, which is not a technological one, but it's a, it's a governance and government policy legislation workhorse, which can in of itself change over time and reduce the moral hazard of relying on overly optimistic supply side solutions. Thanks, Dan. So before we wrap up, I did want to ask you, Gwyn, you talk in the book about the centrality of cooperation to climate action and the need for values and behaviours to shift in order to enable this. And you also talk about how this capacity is likely to develop over the course of dealing with crisis. Looking at the current state of the UN climate negotiations and national action towards the Paris Agreement, but also at the wider international affairs context, how would you say this is going and what factors might be important in shaping progress towards it? We got the United Nations out of the Second World War. We wouldn't have it without the Second World War. So... Frankly, international cooperation is not something people volunteer for because they think it's nice. It's something people turn to because they're desperate. And I think it will be the same with this, that the reason we are beginning to get some international cooperation now that the cops are being taken far more seriously than they were 10 years ago and are happening every year in public rather than every five years is because people are getting more frightened. They're beginning to understand it affects me, it affects my children, do something now. And so they're willing to contemplate giving up control to some more negotiated and centralized authority than they would have been before they were so frightened. I mean, that's the process. But unfortunately, it means you don't get progress until you're in danger. And we're definitely in the danger zone now. So I do think that the possibility exists for real, I mean, within the next 10 years, let us say, for real and enforceable progress in measures having to do with emissions and, and withdrawals and carbon dioxide withdrawals and so on. Uh, that didn't don't even exist now, but will come into process into being in the next five years because it's we're heading for very heavy seas here, and uh, damage will be done, people will be hurt, money will be lost, and that's always very important. And so the the potential expands for international cooperation. I think it's it's actually bigger now than it's ever been, and it will get yet larger, and people will hate it. They always do. Cooperation is hard. It's, you know, we could sit here and be independent and do what we want, and the hell with the rest of them. They're wrong and they're bad anyway. People don't want to make the effort and the, go into the negotiations and make the concessions. That's which is what you've got to do. It, you know, if we ever get some sort of authority that's capable of dealing with climate change, it will be through the process of being driven into various concessions and various agreements by desperation, you know, which is exactly how we got the UN. Mm -hmm. And before that, the League of Nations. I mean, you know, second try, this still didn't work very well, but, you know, it, that's the process. We do not respond well until the threat is visible. Mm -hmm. It's visible now. Thank you, Gwen. 
And that concludes our climate briefing for today. A big thank you to Gwyn Dyer. You're welcome, Ruth. And to Daniel Quiggin. Thanks very much for having me. You can find more of Gwyn's work at gwyndyer.com. The link will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major podcast platforms. So do like, follow and subscribe and please do leave us a review. To find out more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programmes, including our Environment and Society Centre. Goodbye from me, Ruth Townend, and thank you for listening. Thank you.